0: Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. Glad you guys are here with us. Some drum difficulties there. We're good. All right. Very good. Uh, If you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way over to Matthew chapter 11, where we're going to continue kind of working through thinking about some of the stuff that Jesus talked about when it came to evangelism. And if you were with us last week, uh, man, we talked a little bit about some hard stuff. Last week, we talked about what Jesus said about how you have to pick up a cross to follow him, about how he brought a sword. He didn't just come to be nice and say nice things. He came to tell the truth. And the truth, from God's perspective, involves both grace and judgment. And so as we're thinking about our call to take this word out to the world, ah, not only do you have to believe that hard stuff, you have to speak that hard stuff. And that's very difficult. As somebody who's preaching to you and trying to encourage you to do that, I feel the tension of trying to motivate you, not only to say, to speak about Jesus, to tell, like we've been saying about how I once was lost, but now I'm found, but also to say some of the hard stuff, some of the stuff that people might reject you for. There's a a great story. There's a great preacher, a guy named David Platt, and he was telling about his preaching professor, this guy named Jim Shaddix. He's at Southeastern now, but about Jim preaching to all these young, sort of college-age students. And he got up there, and he said, my job today is to convince you not to do missions. And then he started to preach about how hard it would be to go and be on mission with Christ. But he did it in that way that was like, challenging you know like you can't do that and everybody's like yeah i can no please please let me die for jesus you know and so at the end when he's like now saying all that who's ready to go and of course they all just come up and they're weeping and everybody you know signs up and becomes a missionary david platt was so moved by that that he went and preached you know what he thought was a similar message he said i'm i'm here to convince all of you not to go and he said, I was much more successful than Jim Shattuck. <laughs> like at the end of it, no, I was like, yeah, yeah, we're good. Uh, that's the tension that I feel. I feel like I'm telling you this stuff and you're like, oh, cool. All right, well, there's other churches that are nicer, so we're going to go see what else we can figure out. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I get that. God help me. I only want to say what's biblical. I don't want to make anything harsher than it has to be. And yet, I, I do think that we need to be challenged about kind of our... Hmm, propensity, our hmm, bent towards choosing to be, you know, just a little softer on this stuff. I think Christians tend to want to, to go back towards distraction, especially if the other option seems like depression. Last week, we talked about Jesus as he is giving his kind of final words to the disciples before he sends them out to go and do evangelism, and he says this hard stuff. He tells them about how he's come to bring a sword. He tells them about how they have to take up a cross to follow him. Hard stuff. But when we are distracted, when we kind of go back to the way that the world does things and says like, okay, there is true stuff, but I'd rather not think about it. I'd rather have all of my daily stuff be really good and fun, really engaging and feel meaningful. I I don't really want to think about the big questions. The way we talked about that last week is, The modern man kind of everything is fun, but everything, meaning the big questions, we man, as far the further you get from the day to day, and the more you zoom out and kind of look at the every the everything, the big questions, the more depressing it gets. So, you know, you try and entertain yourself and entertain yourself and keep yourself working and entertain yourself, and then and then every now and again you have one of those wandering questions about, like, is there a God? Is he good? What's the universe mean? And instead of dwelling there, you're like, I wonder what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter, you know? Like, let me just instead <laughs> distract myself. And that, that race of distraction can be fun. It's just not true. What we call you to instead is the life of a believer. The life of a believer has his eyes up, has her eyes up on Christ. Which means that seeing him in his holiness, you see yourself and your world in its sinfulness. You see the great good of this Jesus who came to die for us, to make a way for us to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God. But you see the need of all these people around you to embrace that. Maybe at first you're encouraged by that because you feel like light in a dark place and you're going to go shine brightly. But you go and you do that and you just get rejected. And then again, rejected. And you're a proud person too. So you're slowly kind of getting cut off from that view of Him. You're kind of trying to do it in your own strength. And slowly you just dry out. There's no oil in the engine, and the gears just start to grind. Where last week I think Jesus was speaking to the distracted, today He's speaking to the depressed. And I'm going to use that word because I like the alliteration. But clinical depression, there is a different category for. What I'm talking about is the believer who has stopped hoping. And the example that we get for that, of course... uh, it's kind of surprising. I, I, you know, Jesus sends out the 12. He sends out these weak, uninformed kind of guys. One of them's even a traitor. And then as they go, he turns. It says in verse 1 of Matthew 11 when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in, these, uh, in their cities. And then he gets word from John the Baptist. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, He sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Do you see the transition? Jesus sends the twelve. These guys are fishermen and tax collectors. They are not impressive. But he has just equipped them, empowered them, and sent them. He turns and gets word from the disciples of John the Baptist, who's the opposite of the disciples. John the Baptist is the hyper-committed guy. John the Baptist is the the live-in-the-desert guy. He's the one that by prophecy was given. uh, His dad was a priest who was made mute for months until his wife gave birth as an old lady. Biblically, that was making you think about the promises of God given to Abraham. Whose wife didn't have a baby until she was ancient, ancient. This is the John who was jumping in his mother's womb when Mary came and said, I think I'm pregnant, to her sister or her cousin Elizabeth. This is John the Baptist who was prophetically given the job of preparing the way for the Christ. He's a big deal, he's a faithful preacher. He baptized Jesus. And after sending out the twelve, Jesus turns and gets word that John the Baptist is doubting. He's in jail, and he's doubting. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John the Baptist is depressed and oppressed. He's in jail. Let's look at this situation. I want to understand it, because I want you to see yourself in it, and I want you to receive the encouragement. I want you to receive the medicine that Jesus gives. First, John, in his situation, John's in jail, and he's in jail for speaking the truth. John told the guy who was the king over Israel in those days that he should not be romantically entangled with his sister-in-law. Now, that seems obvious. It doesn't seem like a crazy thing to say that, but you say that to the wrong person, and, you know, you end up in jail. He was in jail for telling the person sitting on King David's seat on the throne of Israel to be sexually faithful to his wife. And in jail, he looks out to this Jesus, he's thinking, he's hearing these stories about the ministry of the Christ, and instead of hearing about Jesus bringing judgment to unjust sinners like this Herod cat, he's preaching and healing people, or there's food being multiplied, I don't know. But what I do know is I'm still in jail, and the person who is supposed to be the, the righteousness giver, the king of Israel, is instead the one who put me here. The guy that's walking around claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, the sent one, the anointed one, the son of David, the one who should be on that throne, is not taking the throne. And instead, I wrought here. He's oppressed, he's got bad situation, but he's also depressed. He's lost sight of the hope that he's supposed to have. I don't think I'm reading too much into this. John preached, he said in Matthew 3, 11 and 12, As John the Baptist was preaching, preparing the way for the Christ, he said to the people, I baptize you with water. He's named John the Baptist because he was baptizing people all the time. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He's right about that. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is John the Baptist's message about Jesus? Judgment, holiness, coming to right wrongs. And yet, I don't know. I mean, he's healing people. That's cool. There's the water walking, that's impressive but here I am still in jail. There was this disconnect. He can see the power of God, but he doesn't see the power of God working in his life. He feels like he's doing the right stuff. He's saying what he's supposed to say. He's living a sacrificial, righteous life. But this powerful God that seems to be close isn't doing anything. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. Feels like a bill of goods to the point that he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, is this guy, are are you really the Christ? Or are we supposed to wait on another one? Did I point to the wrong guy when I said, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world? And Jesus responds in a way that is both truthful and loving. And I want you to see both of them because I want to speak both of those to you today. If you are somebody who is going to be faithful enough to reject a lifestyle of distraction and instead have your eyes up on God and down on people so that you can see them and love them and incarnate in their life just like Jesus incarnated into our world, that you can go and hug them and weep with them, then you need this because you're going to start running out of hope unless you got your eyes on this truth and love. First, this truth. Jesus answers these disciples of John. He says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. Now, I don't know in tone what Jesus, how Jesus said that. I said it as a rebuke, but I don't know, maybe not. The tone that he communicated, uh, you know, we don't have. The words that he communicated, though, connect to John's question with a true answer. John's question was, are you the Christ or should we wait for another? And Jesus responds by saying, quotes from Isaiah, who is a prophet in the Old Testament, telling us all kinds of things about the one who is to come. So, Jesus doesn't just say, Of course I am. Shut up, John. He could. But instead, kindly, he goes to just truth. Well, let's think about it, John. What are the the signs? What does it look like to be the Messiah? And he starts ticking them off. He starts saying that what the Messiah would do, I am doing. What's interesting, if you actually look this stuff up, though, is that Jesus is also showing that the thing that that John's worried about, the thing that he's looking for, which is the righteousness to come, not necessarily the judgment, like he gets to laugh at the burning of sinners, no, 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 but but the righteousness coming, having a king over Israel that's not sleeping with his sister-in-law. When Jesus starts quoting from Isaiah, he quotes not only the grace that is to come, he's also telling about the, uh, the judgment that is to come. He says um, in verse Isaiah 35, verse 4, so this is one of the kind of quotes that Jesus is pulling on as he is talking about what he has come to do. He says in verses like 2 and 3, some of the stuff that he quoted from, but verse 4 says, "'Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God.'" will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now, there's a game where you sing, right? You, well, I'm not going to sing, but like you could you could sing the first part of a lyric and then stop, and then everybody has to finish it. And there was this uh, youth speaker when I was growing up, he got us, because he was like, he would do some song, he would say the first couple words of, it, words of it, and then everybody could finish, everybody in the room, and then he would be like, Uh, quoting some like pretty obvious Bible verse and he'd get like the first three words in and then he'd wait and then of course there was the one like homeschool kid that could do it but everybody else was just like ah you know feeling very convicted well John the Baptist was that kid like he could do it so when Jesus says the blind receive their sight and the lame walk John is going to hear Isaiah 35 2 and 3 and then he's going to supply verse 4 about the anxious in heart, about how they should be strong and fear not, about how God will come with vengeance. That John, if he, if he hears Jesus saying this, this verse about the good news being preached, he's then going to continue Isaiah 61, 1 with Isaiah 61, 2, which says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. What's happening Jesus is reminding John that he knows exactly what a Messiah has come to do. That in fact, he knows a lot more about that than John does. Because while he has come to fulfill all righteousness, he's also come to make a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven. That the way he's come has not just been to, to take this sickle and just kill all of us. He could do that from heaven. When he came down and took on flesh and lived among us, it was that he could be with us. And then die for us. The gospel message that Jesus came to come and preach, to live, to make possible, John only barely grasped. It's true, he does say, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world, but I don't think he really understood. I think at some point John had started to either shift or just an incomplete picture, but instead of hoping that Jesus would come and take away the sin of the world, in prison he kind of wanted Jesus to take away the sinners of the world. And what Jesus is saying back to John, and here's a little irony, is he is saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He ends with this truth that says, hey, John, I know you think you're really godly right now and all these other people need to repent. You actually are the one who is losing faith in me. You're being offended by me. Now, that's what I'm saying. He speaks a little truth to John. You would think that you would pat on the head somebody who's in jail (laughs) for you. But he reminds John with truth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He, he's, he's capturing this sort of, this bruised reed here. This, this smoldering wick. He's not putting it out. He's, he's caring for it. He's giving him truth. And he's speaking with a lot of love here. He's telling John that, yes, you're in jail, but God's still on his throne. He's reminding John with these, these quotes from Isaiah that God is still with you. Rachel and I were talking about this. You, you tell your kids, of course, I'm not going anywhere. I'm always going to take care of you. And if there's ever a moment where the, like, the pickup doesn't happen perfectly and they're like kind of looking around for you, there's going to be this, it's crazy how fast, this immediate temptation in their heart to think they're not coming. They've forgotten me. They're never going to come. And, and Rachel and I, we don't always respond to that with, like, love because it's also an insult, right? Oh, you think I'm not, I can't keep up with my kids? You think I don't know when your time to come out of school is? You think I can't figure out how to get here and take care of you? And we find ourselves saying, and I wonder if God ever says it this way, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hey, little kid that thinks that I'm not smart enough to figure this out, I know when you get out of school. I'm going to be there. If you don't see me, maybe it's because you went to the wrong side of the school. Trust that I know what I'm doing. I think God says it that way sometimes. I will never leave you or forsake you. Look at the cross. What amount of love do I need to display where you will stop questioning that I love you? I think John's kind of there for a second. And Jesus, I think gently... Is reminding him of this truth. But the, the passage doesn't stop there because Jesus also reminds him a great deal of, of love. I don't know how much of this next part John the Baptist's disciples heard and communicated, but Jesus says it to the crowd. He tells them all as the disciple Okay, so as the disciples go away of John, Jesus speaks to the whole crowd concerning John, and he says, What'd you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Jesus is starting to, to challenge everybody about their thoughts on John. Oh. All right, you maybe just heard me talking to John's disciples, and he's worried about whether or not I'm the Christ. What do you think this John is? Do you think he's faithless? Depressed Christian, you're not faithless. If you've lost hope because you've just continued doing what God's called you to do and it feels like everything is just grinding on grinding on grinding without the fruit that you feel like should be there, Jesus sees that and he knows you're not faithless. You're not a reed shaken by the wind. You're not soft. You're not somebody who's giving up because it's painful. He's not a man who lives with soft clothing like kings in their castles. What Jesus is doing there is also poking at Herod, who's got John in jail. No, 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 no. Herod's not the righteous one. John is the righteous one. Jesus speaks with love about this John. And why? It's because he sees John and he just loves this guy so much. He's very clear about who this John guy is. He says in verse 9, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is standing up for John, just like John stood up for Jesus. Jesus is standing up for John, not just because he just loves people, not just because John is super effective, because he sees John, and because he loves John. You need to hear this. You feel like you're so far from the Lord right now. He sees you, and he loves you. There's a part of you that may say, okay, I can see that Jesus is being very loving towards John here, but He also says that this John guy is a really big deal, right? He's more than a prophet. He's the one who will prepare the way for Christ. So, of course, Jesus cares about John the Baptist, but does Jesus care about me? See, part of the reason that I am losing some of my joy in the walk of Christ is because I'm so ineffective. I'm not really in in danger of being put in jail because nobody really seems to think I'm too dangerous. (laughs) Would would Jesus feel this way about me when I am so ineffective? Well, this is going to blow your mind. But this is what Jesus says next in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? If we're talking about effectiveness, John's effectiveness is not his willingness to go live in a desert. John's effectiveness is not his boldness to tell Pharisees that they're a pit of vipers. John's effectiveness was was the extent to which he could point to Jesus. Jesus what John was good at. The reason that he was a prophet and more than a prophet was because he wasn't just prophesying about Jesus. He was actually the last prophet of the Old Testament. He was actually the one who could represent Elijah and everybody else and actually point to Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The gradient on effectiveness of a prophet was how well do you get to point to Jesus? And John the Baptist got to trump everybody else because he actually got to point to Jesus, to put Jesus water. Pulling pull him back up, watch a dove come down on him and the heavens open up and God say, behold my son, with whom I'm well pleased. John was there. Do you understand that what he's saying here is that you are even more effective than John? Why? Because you, puny, regular, distracted, sinful, you gets to show the world Jesus even better than John the Baptist. You are even more, this is crazy, effective. Why? Because you get to show the world Jesus after the cross. You get to show the world Jesus in His holiness, in His love, in His grace, in His forgiveness. And this is just the first ones I could think of as I'm just writing this stuff out. You start to keep going, and you realize, well, you're going to run out of time. Let's just go through these really quickly. You show the world Jesus in your holiness. First Peter says it, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You are going to live a life that shows the world Jesus in the way that you study Jesus ...and then live like Jesus. John the Baptist could study the Old Testament... ...and then live up to the law of Moses. You and I get to study Jesus... ...and see that unbelievable blend... ...of both holiness and love. Gentleness and truth. You and I now get to also sit... ...and look at 2,000 years of brothers and sisters... ...who have led us in how... ...to show the world the holiness of Jesus... And you say, okay, well, that first point doesn't actually encourage me that much because I'm not really that good of a person. I get it. But you also get to show the world Jesus' love. That's what it says in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you point to Jesus? How are you a signpost for who Jesus is? Because you show the world that Jesus can love somebody like me. I don't know how impressive you are to the world. Maybe you're somebody who is really impressive. You hold a position in the world that people respect. Great. You can show the world that God loves people like that. Maybe, though, you're very not respectable. Maybe you're a person that people around you look at and want to distance themselves from. Do you understand that you get to point the world to Jesus by saying that Jesus loves people like me? If you were honest with people, if they could see who you are, if they could see how far you fall from that holiness standard, and you could still say that God loves sinners like me, then you would be showing the world the incredible, the ocean, the the space-level size of God's love for his people. You show the world Jesus in his holiness. You show the world Jesus in his love. You show the world Jesus in his forgiveness. Because you don't stand there and tell the world that you're a good person. You stand there and tell the world that you're a forgiven person. It says in 9.2 of Matthew, Behold, some people brought a paralytic to Jesus lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. How often have we talked about this over the last two series? I can't get away from it. I'm saying it to myself hourly. Take heart, My son, your sins are forgiven. I'm not happy because I'm good. I'm not happy because God's holy. A holy God's going to squish me like a bug. I'm happy because I'm forgiven. That he looks at me and says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. You get to show the world the love that you receive from a God who looks at you and forgives you. You point to Jesus with grace. Romans 5 again, verse 2 says, Through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You stand daily receiving from God. You do. I had to try and help get some of the stuff for this Thanksgiving feast. Can I tell you how hopeless I felt by myself in Sam's Club trying to find the right thing? It's hard enough when you go to do that for your family and you've got your wife there ready on like a FaceTime to show you where on the spice rack to like get the thing that you say isn't there, but it's right there, you know, and she can tell you it's right there. Well, multiply that by however many people we're going to serve and you feel the weight of all these like hungry children and you don't know where the spice blend is. It's Sam's. I don't know. It's just a maze. Who knows what's in there? And I prayed item by item. (laughs) Lord, show me, please, where are the clamshells for the meal? Okay, here we go. Now let's do this. Trust in God and grace, item by list item. Of course, he has that grace for you. Of course, he has that love for you. Of course, if you had a little humility, you would see how much he is enabling you to do moment by moment by moment you are able to point the world to god to jesus through your understanding and then speaking about this gospel you may feel miserably ineffective just like john the baptist you may be in a pit physically or emotionally If so, listen, here's the action steps. Don't just understand and believe the stuff that we've been talking about. You do need to take some action here. You need to do what John did. What did John do? John confessed. He was feeling so much doubt that he actually recruited his disciples and sent them to Jesus and said, are you the Jesus? Why would he ask that question? Because he's doubting. What is he doing when he asks that question? He's confessing that doubt. I don't know where you're at right now. Are you discouraged? Would you say that you're performing at like peak excitement and optimism? If not, consider it. Maybe it's time to bring somebody in on that darkness. Ask a couple questions. Have another believer step up and say to you, hey, actually, you don't need to be discouraged because of, and then just start giving you light. You confess your darkness, you're going to find all kinds of resources. I've been asking you to email me. Hey, I've got this question. I'm, I'm considering evangelism, but I've, I've always run into this objection. Man, it would be really great if, you could, if I could find some resources on that. Email me that. Can I tell you when people have emailed me and I've responded, they're kind of like confused. They're surprised that I want them to talk about this. Listen, I'm surprised you're surprised. What do you think I do all week? I, I know most of you are like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I get to continue to equip you to do the work of ministry. Please ask this stuff, confess this doubt, confess this depression where you find it. It's not a sin to be sad. It's not a sin to go through the physiological experience of depression. It is a sin to doubt your God. Confess that depression and let's figure out, okay, maybe there's a place where this is coming from. Let me help encourage you. Let your brothers and sisters in your community group help encourage you. This is your first time today. Let the person who brought you encourage you. Man, and, and maybe you need to confess your distraction. Maybe you feel like maybe the, the, this sort of John stuff isn't stuff that's part of your walk. You feel like Christianity is actually a pretty small thing and you're knocking it out pretty well. Let me ask you to just consider Is it possible that you've kind of drunk the Kool Aid of the world a little bit on just keeping yourself distracted? Man, let's confess that and instead believe what God has given us in Christ. Listen, we stand for him now, he stands for us later. John stood up for Christ, and when he was in a prison cell, Christ stood up for John. Brothers and sisters, let us be encouraged to keep going. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us just a moment of of reflection. Father, there's, there's a lot that needs to happen when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ encouraging one another, and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't happen because we just don't slow down long enough to say, where do I need encouragement? In what way? From whom? Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to connect to one another. You have given us gifts in the Spirit in order to bless one another, to build up so I pray that you'd give us opportunity to do that, Lord. In this moment of reflection now, as we sing and then as we leave. Lord, please highlight where where is the joy gone? So that we can reach out to one another, find it again and continue for your glory and our good. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.